we're going to do this in tag team style. So Elizabeth is going to give a presentation. I'm going to, in some ways, mirror that. But <clears throat> I should say that one of the problems in the School of Anthropology is that we honestly don't know what people are doing. <clears throat> and it was a surprise to me that Elizabeth was passionate about models. I'd been passionate about models in a different arena. We discovered this actually late last year. <clears throat> and that um, we should probably ex examine the intersections between, between, our ways, between our ways of thinking. So I think we're going to have probably quite different presentations um, It'll be for you to identify the intersections. It'll be for the discussion to develop those intersections. And we would both be grateful for sympathy from the audience because we were still preparing this talk 20 minutes ago. And I left my notes in the toilet at 51 Banbury Road. So I'm just going to wing it. Well, I'm going to wing it too. Um, uh, just a couple of um, notes to start. Um, you mentioned interdisciplinarity, um, Alex. And in fact, I can't claim art and history uh, as my background. I, I can claim an undergraduate degree in art history and, and German literature. Um, uh, to, to what extent that's really influenced my later um, training as a social anthropologist, I'm not quite sure. Um, in many respects, I suppose, I'm a kind of... Um, uh, quintessential monodisciplinarian uh, in that I um, conduct ethnographic fieldwork um, in the context of, of, of social anthropology. Uh, not only am I a monodisciplinarian in many ways, um, but, but I'm also a sort of monocultural disciplinarian in the sense that I conduct my fieldwork um, not just in a single country, but in a single um, state, and in fact in a single village, with about currently 450 people with whom I've worked since the late 1990s. Um, so in many ways, these conversations about interdisciplinarity are, are um, sort of new conversations to me, although I find, looking back, uh, when we discovered this emerging interest in, in models, which I think... For Stanley is a sort of quite well-developed passion for me. I sort of beginning of thinking this could be quite an, an interesting um, thing to, to explore. So there are very different stages, I'd say, in, in thinking about models. When I, um, having had the conversation with, with Stanley, decided, okay, let's do this thing on models together. Uh, the obvious thing to do was to Google social anthropology and models, um, and uh, of course I, I came up with. Uh, the answer to my problem, which is the relevance of models for social anthropology, it's 1965, um, ASA edited collection. And lo and behold, in the introduction to this collection, um, the very issue that I think we may be engaging with today is identified, which is that as you see a kind of developing specialization within the field of anthropology, alongside it, you also see the developing interest in what I suppose at the moment is called interdisciplinarity. And I see the things as um, not entirely unrelated, but as, it's, as it were, as we sort of move into our ever greater specialisations, which I think in, in the School of Anthropology are very well represented, and indeed, of course, across um, the university, we also, as it were, produce the conditions within which interdisciplinarity becomes imaginable and uh, even desirable. So 
some of what I've been thinking about um, is new to me, but much of what I want to talk to you about this morning is in fact relating to stuff which was sort of important in the 1960s and is probably worth um, revisiting at, at this point. <coughs> okay, now um, the other thing I've learned in talking to Stanley is that um, he's a lot better at um, PowerPoint slides than I am, so um, I have a relatively short number of PowerPoint slides from myself and, and then um, a, a greater diversity of models and representations from Stanley. Um, now, I suppose in thinking about what models are to social anthropology, uh, I started by separating them out um, into explanatory models and then what you might call representational models. Um, and no sooner had I done that, then of course it dawned on me that the separation, whilst kind of strategically useful in terms of designing the talk, um, is entirely problematic in its own right. So in a sense, if we're looking at the two images on here, you know, you might sort of think, well, that one up there's a kind of um, explanatory model, but of course it's also um, a, a representational model. It's from Louis Strauss's famous article on dual organisation, um, in which he noted that um, Winnebago or people have these two separate models that you ask them to represent um, their, their village, depending on um, what side of the village they come from, they, they produce two different models. Um, and then the bottom is an exercise in model making in terms of, kind of material models, um, which is a whole kind of bit of, of modeling in anthropology, which I think talks really interestingly also to archaeology, um, which is kind of the idea of miniaturization, of representation in, um, um, in, in different scales. So that, that would be kind of what I suppose um, the Pitt Rivers Museum, in a sense, um, contains. Now, of course, those might be representational <coughs> models, but they are also explanatory models. In this case, it's a, a pretty um, kind of interesting, although curious, thing, which is um, a workshop which was run for young Panada people to sort of rethink their own history, um, during which they spent a couple of days building these small models of traditional indigenous houses. Okay, so, and that's what they're doing at that moment. Okay, now, of course, anthropology is full of models in many ways. We might think of the fairly technical kinship diagrams, maps of social organization, ideal village plans, across to scale models of villages and houses, um, as, in, as in the image there. Or indeed, we might think of Alfred Gell's article in which he explains Marilyn Strathern's gender of the gift through a set of diagrams, Strathernograms. Um, now, whether his diagrams, if you like, are designed to represent the gender of the gift or not, they're certainly a good way um, of explaining some of the ideas within it. So thinking about um, sort of alternative ways of um, getting at, at meaning is, is, of course, one of the reasons why models are kind of interesting, I suppose. Right. Now, a few words on kind of interdisciplinarity, and I speak here very much um, from the position of somebody who really doesn't know, and I don't know on some multiple le levels. Um, firstly, because my sort of engagement with sort of other disciplines is relatively scant. I've talked to a bunch of 
historians and sociolegal people, as, as Nanda knows, which was um, entirely enjoyable and, and um, I think a great exercise. But I can't say that I've really engaged hugely with interdisciplinarity um, until now. As you've said, Alex, I mean, it seems to be a good thing, um, but whether it's a good thing sort of in a sort of enduring sense or whether it's just word of the moment, I, I really don't know. Um, there seem to be two kinds of interdisciplinarity. One that seems to seek conversations between disciplines around perhaps a single issue. Um, now, here, interdisciplinarity relies, I, I would think, on a very firm grounding in disciplinarity. In other words, different disciplines, people grounded in their own disciplines, coming together to discuss a single issue. Um, I wonder, though, whether this form of interdisciplinarity is then both a product and a producer of increasingly pronounced specialisation, as I mentioned um, at the start. Or then, second possibility, interdisciplinarity is sitting in between disciplines, drawing a little from many disciplines, and in that po process, possibly becoming a discipline in its own right. Some of these issues discussed, in fact, in an article that... Um, uh, Alex, you, you circulated a special issue outside the lines, issues in interdisciplinary research. Now, if there is one thing then that characterises social anthropology, I'd say, I might follow Strathern in another article circulated by Alex in, in an interview which she um, conducted, well, which um, Ludmila Jordanova conducted with Marilyn Strathern on anthropology and interdisciplinarity in which Marion Strathern argues that what characterises social anthropology is accurate description of the social world. Okay. Now, in this respect, and mindful of the interconnected nature of social phenomena, respectful of our holistic aspirations, we might, of course, argue that ethnographic fieldwork is interdisciplinary by nature. Okay, so in a day's fieldwork in a single conversation, of course, we may be faced by a multitude of disciplinary perspectives. And I put here, and I suppose I could have picked almost any conversation from fieldwork, and I, I think probably that's everybody's experience is conducted ethnographic fieldwork. I've put here a um, uh, comment made to me by um, Socriti, uh, uh, an elder of um, Banara, um, this would have been the kind of late 90s, so he would have been about ooh, 98. He would have been about 50. We're travelling down river. We've been um, on a kind of hunting trek, and we're on our way home, poling away the canoe, and we pass um, on the river bank one of these things, which is a kind of um, wasp's nest, right? Um, and we're poling along. So Katie looks up and he says, "See those wasps over there?" Well, those wasps were hippe in the olden days. Okay, now hippe in Banara is um, the kind of counter-category to Banara. So where Banara are kind of real people, hippe are the kind of enemy other white people. In the olden days, those wasps were Banara. This is why hippe know about <coughs> cement. Okay, right. Now, of course, in trying to make sense of um, this sentence, you're confronted, if you like, by information that appeals to zoological knowledge. Um, wasp taxonomy, wasp bee taxonomy amongst the Panada is pretty complex, so 
They distinguish upwards of um, 35 um, bee species, of which about 28 produce kind of what they consider edible honey, distinguish between ones with stings and one, ones without, and so on. So zoological knowledge, um, certainly you can find here. You can find philosophy, history, aesthetics, politics, and even economics, I would argue, given that the material culture of hippe, white people, enemy, others, is by its nature considered to be valuable, almost intrinsically valuable um, and desirable from the point of view of Panada people. So in a sense, um, we, can, uh, we, we might argue that as anthropologists, we have got to be interdisciplinary. Okay? That's the only way of taking account of the interconnected nature of phenomena. Now, since this seminar is about models, I thought I might have a go at modelling the process of research in anthropology. Um, <laughs> this is slightly crude, um, but I hope you might recognise some of it, perhaps particularly if you're kind of in the process of doctoral fieldwork. Uh, so at, at your kind of fieldwork stage, and I've called this slide From Lives in Theory to Theories of Life. Um, so at your pre-fieldwork stage, you're dealing with hypotheses, comparative reading, etc., and it's very much, if you like, life in theory. Um, and it's that that, if you like, gives rise to the questions that um, you hope to go on to do uh, your research on. Then you head off to fieldwork. You find yourself in this in place, specific place, a location, specific people, friends, people you get on with, people you don't get on with, and so on. Um, life is lived, if you like. There's a kind of a reality to it living amongst people. And then you come back and the thing starts to deteriorate in some ways and you get to life on paper, um, which is often a very difficult process, right? So you've got that in place, lived um, experience that, that characterised fieldwork. Um, and it's at this point, I suppose, that a process of generification um, starts to set in. And as you generify um, from individual people to a kind of description of um, social life, I suppose the idea of models starts to become um, important. Now, post-field work, accurate description, as um, Strathairn argued, could be the end of the story, um, and in, in many ways, I'd sort of say for myself, it has been. I've written about um, Banada people as um, they see, as it were, so the Banada ethnography from the point of view of Banada people. Um, but for, for many, and I suppose that's something that our school might um, sort of uh, reflect, for many then there's a, a, another step, which is then the kind of, so what question? So you know, who cares about 450 people in the Amazon? So might we do something with this and might there be a bigger picture? Um, and comparison is perhaps something that kicks in at that point. Regional comparisons um, and, and you know, scaling up all the way to kind of if you like, universal theories of life. Okay. And that's probably, uh, I would suggest, the bit where you start really kind of getting some mileage from um, talking to each other, being able to say something beyond um, what that in-place specific fieldwork was able to tell you in its own right. So it's at that point, I suppose, that conversations across, um, for example, our school would be quite useful. Right. Okay, now, a specific case of model-making in, um, in, in anthropology. Um, now, the case I want to look at is a debate between 
Claude Lévi-Strauss and David Mabry-Lewis in the 1960s. Um, you don't have to have a double-barreled name to work in Amazonia, but it seems to help. Um, so Lévi-Strauss and, and Mabry-Lewis, the 1960s, arguing about the nature of dual organization. Okay. And in a sense, what they're arguing about is you know, how you capture all of these things on here. So we have top left an image from about 2003. We've got top right an image from about 1971. This is um, 2007. That's 1998. And the one at the end um, is, in a sense, timeless. It was drawn in about 1998, I suppose. Right, so how do you kind of understand, or these, if you like, these are all sort of different models, representations of a particular place. Now, essentially for Levi-Strauss and Mabry-Lewis, the disagreement in respect of dual organization is to do with the level at which model making should occur in anthropology. Okay, for Mabry-Lewis, um, models correspond to social reality. Okay. Whereas for Levi-Strauss, models precisely operate at a level removed from social reality. Okay. So the issue is over dualism, dual organization. How should you understand it? Levi-Strauss argues that the circular villages of um, central Brazil need to be understood. So they're concentric. You've got sort of residential houses, central men's house, sometimes two, need to be understood, understood as kind of special cases of what are essentially tripartite or triadic um, forms of organization, okay? And he gets to that point because he argues that if you've got a center and a periphery, you've also always got the environment, okay? So the third pole is always, um, is always present. Mabry Lewis argues that that doesn't reflect the um, social ideology of the societies that he's talking about, um, where people's models of the universe are sort of closed unto themselves. They talk about a center and a periphery, they don't um, talk about the um, environment. Now, because for Levi-Strauss, center, periphery, and environment form a sort of tripartite system, the system has built into it, if you like, the logic of its own transformation. Okay? In other words, for Levi-Strauss, dual organization becomes a potentially, well, it becomes an in effect dynamic system, okay? where you've kind of got at every moment a kind of transformation in the system. Um, which means that history gets built in, which is, um, uh, from my point of view, that, that was a very helpful um, thing in understanding the transformations that Banara people underwent from the early 70s through to the late 90s, um, from the point of kind of initial contact with Brazilian National Society in the early 70s through to the late 90s. So he talks about these systems as systems in perpetual disequilibrium, and that might be something that Stanley comes back to. And I sort of would say at this point that whereas some of the sort of modeling um, and, and sort of dynamism that I think you'll see in a moment in, in Stanley's work has a sort of predictive element to it, the, the one thing that I'd say models in social anthropology can't do or perhaps shouldn't do is to take on that predictive element. Okay. Why? Because we know change happens, but we don't know what that change is going to be. Okay. Um, so, uh, well, yeah, I won't give you an example of my own disastrous predictive um, uh, attempts. Okay, now, 
Mabry Lewis, then, it is true to say, is sticking much closer to social reality in the sense of presenting a model that corresponds quite closely to the social ideology of Chavanti people that he was working with. Um, whereas Levi Strauss, of course, quite explicitly looks for something beneath and beyond. Okay. Now, if these are systems in perpetual disequilibrium, if they're dynamic and the logic of their own transformation is within the system, then I suppose one of the things we might do is to explore um, the, the particular ways in which different societies express um, the, these transformations. So uh, as Levi Strauss argued in, in 1960, a quote, what a given society says in terms of marriage relations is being said by another society in terms of village layout and in terms of religious representations by a third and so on. Um, and of course, the possibilities through which, as it were, um, societies express the logic um, of, of their own um, existence, if you like, is, is infinite. Um, I, I've looked um, in the past at, at body arts and sort of transformations in um, body arts and what conditions of what you might call modernity uh, and have argued that, um, in fact, we can sort of understand transformations in bodily um, presentation as, as part of a sort of singular um, cultural logic. Right. I'm going to end my bit then um, by pointing you in the direction of the edit, edited collection I mentioned in the beginning, the relevance of models for social anthropology, um, which already then pointed out that anthropology um, as a discipline is characterized by an emphasis on the interconnected nature of social phenomena. Now, models being at once tentative explanations as well as partial representations of the complicated and messy lives we live could perhaps then serve as a point around which variant disciplines and indeed sub-disciplines sub might gather. And this is the bit where I hand over, I think, to you, Stan. You? Okay, thank you. Um, now, as someone once said, for something completely different, um, but hopefully interconnected. Okay, um, I'm going to carry on with this uh, uh, dual organization principle and uh, talk about um, um, obesity. And I'll start with a, with a preface, which is that um, obesity can be seen very much as a political and economic project, uh, that ultimately government's interests in obesity are in, re in relation to economic productivity and, and, and so on. I'd rather take the view that I really don't mind how much body weight people carry as long as they're happy. And, and, uh, and uh, so I accept that you know, there is a sub-discipline called critical fat studies. That's not something I'm going to engage in. What I'm going to engage in is the idea of uh, the project of obesity and how it comes to represent and try to explain um, this state of disequilibrium, which is one of populations increasing in body size. And a bit of background, I am wearing the T-shirt. Um, 
which is an historical document. Amy McLennan at the back is somebody who's responsible for developing some of the material culture um, around, uh, 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 around what we do. This was an early T-shirt, and it says, it's complicated. Actually, the discourse has moved on to, it's complex. But actually, I prefer, it's complicated, because that's far more social. To try and understand what complexity is, the idea of complexity is picked up uh, by the people working on obesity without definition in many different ways. And so there's a whole sloppiness around the way that the idea of complexity is engaged with. It's a buzz term, and it can mean many different things. That there is a project for actually investigating what complexity means. Now, I've been thinking about models forever, from the time I was a little kid to the time that I became a biochemist. And if you look in any biochemistry textbook, it's full of diagrams, full of things flowing, one thing into another, round and round, ending up somewhere, funneling somewhere else. Um, and so, you know, the idea of, you know, rep mod uh, models and representations is sort of kind of fundamental to, to the way I think. I should also say that as an interdisciplinary activity, um, I wouldn't really think of myself as being a lone researcher. I feel that my boundaries are extremely porous. So just in the room here, Caroline Potter, uh, we've been discussing for years and years and years about models. And, you know, we never come to a conclusion because we can't. Um, because it is a work in pro uh, uh, progress. Uh, Bonnie Wong, we've had discussions. Amy McLennan, Rajiv, Karen Ellie, we've all had discussions about models and what they might mean, what they might represent. And we're all equally confused, um, which is always exciting, because uh, the confusion, uh, the muddle, is the thing that keeps us going. Um, I'd also say that, as Elizabeth has said, that uh, models as explanation, models as representation, really, it's a false dichotomy because in order to develop a hypothesis about the disequilibrium of obesity, you have to have a representation that you work to. Then you test that hypothesis and then you see if you can come to an explanation. If you can't, you create another representation. And the issue with obesity studies is there are so many representations out there. Elizabeth, if I could ask you to sit over here because I'm going to be walking up and down. Um, no, no. And I'll start off. I'll start off with some some representations very very quickly. The woman of Willendorf shows that in the Paleolithic, um, fatness existed, and this is used as a trope in uh, uh, people in evolutionary medicine, evolutionary anthropology, to say that you know fatness and adaptability is nothing particularly new, um, and this has resonance for a particular subdiscipline that 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 uh, deals with uh, with obesity studies. Um, obesity is freak show. This is Daniel Lambert, um, who, um, by today's representations, by today's understandings, would suffer something one would call genetic obesity. There are very few people who have clearly genetic obesity. But he died weighing 335 kilograms. That's just about as heavy as you can get, uh, realistically. But one part of his life, he, he was poor, he put himself on exhibition in London, like Joseph Merrick, the elephant man. So the idea of obesity and freak show is not something that's disappeared from the streets of Whitechapel. Yes, it has, but actually it's in your lounge room now because you have freak show television and it's all around us and, and, uh, and uh, it shapes how we think about bodies and about embarrassing bodies and fat bodies, blah, 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 um, on it goes. 
Um, you have uh, Jessica Holdsworth's uh, representation of, uh, of, uh, of, a, of a chair that's losing its boundaries. So, you know, the issue then is, you know, something that is, that is not being boundaried. It's something that is, that is potentially threatening because it's, it's losing the boundaries. Here's a cover from, um, uh, from the Spectator magazine a few years ago where we can see Parliament being flattened by the weight of Britain's own obesity. And, of course, you see this and it fits all the tropes you would expect. Immediately, it's a stigmatising image. Here is somebody who's clearly watching the television um, with a can of beer, with a burger, with the chips. The cans are all over the floor. He's sitting on the sofa. He's clearly working class. Suddenly, it places, locates fat bodies very clearly in British society. We know exactly where it sits, even without having to, to think about it terribly much. Then we have Janice Saville, who uh, um, I'm very pleased to say has, has, you know, has some... Uh, some links with Oxford, and has represented herself. She's now lost a lot of weight, I should say. Um, represents herself as somebody marked up for plastic surgery. And this is how surgeons mark up the body before, uh, before somebody goes in for you know, either having fat removed or, or, or some, you know, some particular organ being reduced and so on. So you can Google these images and you can find, find markups um, on, 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 the, on, on the web very, very readily. And then you have Wang and Peng. I mean, um, I think uh, Claire said, you know, I just saw this fabulous thing in London. I saw this fabulous thing in London, took a picture of it. This is a, the pillar to civilization, which looks marvelous. It's kind of orangey, you know, orangey color. You walk up to it. I'm sure they spray it with perfume. You walk close to it and, you know, you want to touch it. And then you look at the label and you realize that it's liposucked fat. And then suddenly you're thrown away from this marvelous thing. And that's exactly what the artists want you to do. They want you to see this marvelous thing called capitalism and be revulsed by it because actually it's some kind of, uh, uh, some kind of, uh, um, uh, it's, a, it's a material that is, uh, that is a not usual material. Um, okay, and Doctor Who um, and the adipose. Okay, who remembers the episode about the adipose? Yeah, one or two, just a couple of Doctor Who people. Okay, go to the, you know, find Doctor Who website and find out about the adipose. The adipose, actually, um, somebody swallowed a tablet that the adipose corporation um, uh, 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 had produced, and then they became like this. The adipose, there's a, you know, they pop out of a body, and then they consume everything. But actually, consuming everything isn't good for them. So there's a little morality in the, in the story. But the adipose are very useful uh, for consuming the people that you don't want. So... It's again the danger associated with obesity through uh, through through the adipose, and children are consuming this. By the way, um, so okay from adipose to adipose tissue, and the kinds of real models um, that you can actually buy to, um, to, to 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 understand the physicality of body fatness. So body fat isn't just fat. Adipose tissue is cells, it's blood vessels, it's all kinds of other tissues, connective tissue and so on, has a very real physicality. If you ever get the chance to touch it, I, I encourage you, um, uh, but uh, you'd need to be in a dissecting room to do it. Um, 
Other representations, of course, things like model stomach and sur obesity surgery, that you have these images, and you have models of how you might do one kind of uh, bypass, how you might do a gastrectomy, how you might use an adjustable gastric band. So again, these are physical models and these are visual models. And the, the surgeons that use these things need these representations as idealizations of anatomy to be able to perform these operations. So I'm convincing you there's a lot of models. Okay, when I first saw this slide, this is scanning electromicroscope image of adipose tissue. So we've got connective tissue in here, but here, these are adipose cells, and they're like egg yolks. And I've never looked at an egg in the same way ever again since I saw that image. So when I think about an egg yolk, I actually think it's like an adipose cell. And in some ways, it is. It's full of fat. It's doing exactly what it should, but it makes you rethink how you, how you might think about, about adipose tissue. And of course, there are medical images, and medical images um, include um, straightforward mycoscopy that goes through the adipose cell. There's a big droplet of, of fat in the middle of these. There's a membrane, and there's a nucleus on the edge. Now, it also shows you that these things can be bigger and smaller. We all have these cells, but not all of them are, are full of fat. Other kinds of medical images... This is an image from Jimmy Bell's lab in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, at the Hammersmith Hospital in, in, uh, in London. One person in this audience has been through Jimmy Bell's scanner. Um, and uh, um, what it shows is a visualization of fat through the body and in cross-section where the fat sits. And interestingly, Jimmy Bell, who is a, a medical physicist, talks about fat in terms of, in terms of boundaries, in terms of layers, as... You know, you have clothing and you go in and in and in. If you strip off the fat, most people look the same. So he kind of thinks about the boundaries within and the boundaries without. So it changes, again, an understanding of, of what fat is. And that's also led to the new discourse, or more recent discourse, about not all fat is equal. Fat is very different. Where you have fat is important. The kind of fat you have is important. And so that, uh, that continues. And, of course, the, the ultimate uh, uh, sci uh, scientific models are these kinds of representations which uh, attempt to pack in what you want to test in, uh, in your science. And this one has, um, you know, should have the logic of its own transformation built into it because it's ex ex trying to explain change through a whole range of what are termed risk regulators, um, biological factors like uh, hormones, appetite, mood, genes, and so on. So a whole range of, of, of things. Um, now, of course, these representations feed into explanation. If we're trying to explain, what is it we're trying to explain, and why, and how? Okay. The Wooden of Willendorf apart, um, and Daniel Lambert apart, um, uh, there's always been the potential for body fatness, but... The body fatness we're talking about now is at the community, society, population level. Fatness is increasing pretty well everywhere, except in some subcasts of, of individuals. We can go to Mozambique, and we'll find that it's increasing. We can go to the places we wouldn't expect it. Levels of, of obesity in South Africa are not far behind the United States, for example. So increasing, increasing. It's recent in time, the last 60 years. There are competing and overlapping analyses. And there are different, differing ecologies of, of obesity. So if we take the, uh, uh, the, the dual organization framework again, 
and, and think through that model that Elizabeth presented, obesity in theory, obesity in real life, two theories of obesity. I'm going to reframe um, obesity uh, studies in the last 30 or 40 years in this, in this, particular, in this particular framework. So obesity in theory, uh, to my mind, comes to the regulation, the, the, the comparative process, the measurement, the surveillance, the screening, um, the standardization of methods. And this is an interdisciplinary process in itself. You have to standardize what you mean by a pathological body size. Then you have to go and measure people all over the, all, 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 all over the place and you have to standardize what it is you're trying to, trying to determine. Is it adults? Is it children? Um, and you have to have international agreement for that measurement. And actually, it was only 1997 that there was international agreement for a standard way of looking at it. I'm not arguing that this is good, but I'm arguing that part, the, the, the early part of the project is actually going to the field, and the field is global, and identifying what is what. What is the problem? What is the issue? And where is it? I mean, in this particular chart, it shows you, for a start, that Nauru, the Cook Islands, French Polynesia, um, all have high levels of obesity in the United States. The standard trope up until 97 was that, actually, the United States has the highest levels of obesity anywhere. We also find the Middle Eastern countries, Kuwait, um, uh, Saudi Arabia, and so on, where Egypt, way up there. So immediately it says, well, it isn't a standard trope argument about Americanization of the world. There are very different things going on. Then you have these time-based representations from the Centers for Disease Control in the United States, which is the, the, the United States surveillance unit for the health of American citizens, um, which shows the movement, the increase in obesity levels between 1990 and the year 2010. You can go to this website, press a button, and you'll see these visualizations changing year on year. And you can see the red peril emerging in American society. Okay. Again, we have the hidden hand of the designer. This is not something that emerges in these visualizations. You just intuit the pictures, but you don't actually think about how these representations are created. That's, and to my knowledge, there is nobody who's currently thinking or working on that. <clears throat> so um, these images do matter because this is how the uh, debate is internalized. Um, other part of obesity in theory is does it matter? How does it matter? So its relationship to, uh, to, 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 to health and life and death. So this chart shows through a statistical model um, that when you have a body mass index that goes very high, then you're twice or three times as likely to die. That's straightforward. Um, and it comes from you know, another, another part of the, uh, part, uh, part the modelling process. So, I'd say the first 30 years or so, um, this is a very peculiar history, so, so tolerate what I say. Um, much of the discourse in ob obesity studies was about two things. Energy balance. That is, everything should be in balance. Normative bodies should be balanced. But obesity is something that is in disequilibrium, therefore it is bodies in disequilibrium, and bodies in disequilibrium are living in societies that are in disequilibrium. So they come to represent something that is not just about health, not just about the economy, but about the way that people live. Much of the early work was dealing with the idea of maintaining energy balance. And much of this was underpinned by the idea of pharmaceutical interventions. 
that if you could somehow, you could eat as much as you want as long as you could burn it all off. The obvious way to do that is to run around furiously or stand and walk and jump and jump and jump and so I'm burning energy um, um, as, long as, you, as long as you burn it off. The early days of obesity pharmaceuticals was, was, was trying, to, trying to push energy-burning drugs, and mostly they were um, amphetamine-based. Some of them drove people to psychosis. Um, some of them led to homicide, um, suicide, and so that clearly, that clearly, clearly didn't work. Uh, <laughs> What happens when you try to, uh, try to deal with obesity in real life? Well, this energy balance model doesn't actually work terribly well. First of all, it's easy as an equation, very easy on the eye, even for somebody who's got no mathematics at all. Um, it's very easy to take this energy balance equation and apply it in a moralizing way, very easy. Because you can say, well, clearly, if it's about energy balance and you cannot regulate your own body, um, then... You know, there's clearly something wrong with you. And stigma about obesity emerges in relation to these kinds of moralizing, moralizing discourses. You have weird things like physiological adjustment. Who's tried to lose weight? Hands up, be honest. Who has tried to lose weight and failed? <laughs> okay, again, be honest. There's a lot of dishonesty in this room. Uh, uh, what happens to a lot of people is that when you try to lose weight, there is physiological adjustment. Your body is defending what it has. It's difficult not to do that. So from the get-go, a lot of work was put into understanding physiological adjustment. I'm apparently a big burner. I expend a lot of energy, even when I'm sitting down doing nothing. I know this scientifically, because I sat in a calorimeter for five days um, without contact with the outside world. I was writing up my doctoral thesis, so I needed isolation. They paid me, and I could sit in isolation. And, and I got scientific data at the end of it. So I know that much about my body. But there's great variation in, in this. And then the influences. Behavior. Behavior is reduced to um, influences that uh, affect energy intake, energy expenditure. But actually, the behaviors that relate to both of those things are extraordinarily social, cultural, etc. That we don't eat food in isolation. We don't use our bodies in everyday life in isolation to other people. It's reducing everything to, to the individual, in this individual energy balance model. So it privileges the idea of individualism and the idea of individualism in responsibility for one's own body and how one maintains energy balance. Then you get this, this kind of thing where environments, we know it's environments and genetics are interacting, that environments could be divided up into traditional environments. This is public health speaking, by the way. Social environments and built environments. In the 1900s, we all practiced leptogenic behavior. This term never caught on. Um, <laughs> leptogenic behavior, it is the behavior that keeps our bodies in check. We don't overeat. We just keep our bodies in check. It's homeostatic behavior, really. And in more recent times, we've moved on to obesogenic uh, behavior, which is underpinned by the social environments in which we live and the built environments in which we live. And so there's a political economy to this, but it isn't interdisciplinary because each of these boxes represents a discipline or a group of disciplines. So while it might be useful, you could just as easily write a few paragraphs about this and reduce this to text 
and the diagram isn't 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 uh, isn't so isn't so hugely helpful. But it's starting to move to 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 understanding obesity in yeah. in slightly more complex ways. Then obesity and networks. The idea that people are networked, they of course talk to each other, they interact with each other, they may be related to each other. And um, in one study, the increase in obesity in Massachusetts, Framingham, Massachusetts, between 1975 and the year 2000, uh, could be shown to fall into networked clusters. That you can see these two little clusters here are people who are thin and have separated from this bigger cluster of individuals in which you find obesity clustering. Of course, the blobs, the fatter blobs, are the fatter people. The thinner blobs are the thinner people. This is 1975. This is the year 2000. And it shows that, you know, that social association is, 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 uh, is linked to, to obesity. Now, most people are persuaded by this figure, and nobody actually reads the full paper, including its appendix. And the appendix is, Rajiv, 10 times bigger than the paper? at least 10 times bigger. It's full of multivariate mathematics and statistics, falls down onto some fairly traditional tools in the middle, and then this is a visual formalization of the mathematics. It's like when you use a computer and you're used to the icons on the computer and you know what they mean, but you don't actually engage with the mathematics that underpin it. So the other modeling is the hidden hand of the mathematical modeler, of the statistical modeler, and the assumptions that are made. So the other things that are embedded in this. And yet, there is no discourse about how these models are produced. OK. <clears throat> Environmental models, genetic models. Um, this is one kind of genetic model that incorporates uh, physiology and physiological outputs. Uh, this is a very uh, a clustered genetic model. And again, it's using similar kinds of modeling procedures, showing the relationships between different genes, because the genetics of obesity isn't simple. There are now how many genes? I have no idea how many genes are associated with obesity, but they are linked together in, in their function. They're linked together in the, how, how they, how they uh, relate to the, the, the physiology of appetite and physiology of, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of weight balance and so on. And so these networks, the previous network was uh, a dynamic one in as much as it showed the same individuals changing across time but it couldn't be used predictively. You could only predict on the, on, the, on the basis of what you already know. Therefore, the predictions you will make can only be based on the, on the data you have. These are static models. These are static representations of, uh, of, uh, of obesogenetics at a particular given time. Something new could emerge tomorrow, be published tomorrow, and throw these networks around completely just because the relationship might be weird or different. It could link this up. These, and these, these models don't build on each other. They, they could be transformed by, by, uh, by, by some new knowledge. And what that new knowledge would be, nobody really knows. And then the discourse about obesity as a disease, um, which goes backwards and forwards. There's a statement that the European Obesity Society wants to say that childhood obesity is a disease, and this document has come to me, and uh, I've said this is a problem for various reasons. But there are things like 
gene networks that rely, relate to so-called disease phenotypes. Um, the, the genetics of diabetes, for example, uh, share, is, is shared to some extent with obesity, so those cluster together. The genetics of cancer, for example, shares many traits across the different cancers and same genes, so that all cluster together. This kind of representation is important because it challenges the notion of disease. The dis discrete disease entities are not discrete. They are actually networked phenomena. That what you call a disease now may not be a disease in two years' time or in five years' time because the genetics that underpin it will, you know, are part of the explanation now. They're not, uh, it's not just the science, it's the, it's the genetics. <clears throat> Another kind of model um, which, uh, you know, I ask people, you know, what a, 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 a model is. Well, another kind of model is, uh, is an animal model. And of course, I'm not sure you, you talk very much about animal models. You find animals hugely distasteful. You probably came past the animal house on the way down to here. Uh, but there are people who implicitly accept and use the idea of animal models. So, animal models are representations. They'd be representations of something. So, this is a, an obob mouse. An obob mouse has been around for about 30 years. Okay, obob simply means oblong, oblong. It's got the oblong gene, um, two copies of it, and an oblong mouse is oblong. It can't move around. It really cannot move around because it eats so much. It's got a huge appetite. Feed it Mars bars and cheese. It will eat, 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 eat. It's voracious in a way that a normal rat is not voracious, and a normal rat is usually quite voracious. This one is especially so. So what's it a model of? <coughs> Animal models are important. Um, how they're used. Why use a rat? Is it appropriate for understanding human fatness? That's a debate that, uh, that, 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 that goes on. It depends on what you want to know. Um, then you take this model and you take out the adipose tissue. You relate that to another model of what appropriate adiposity is. You then statisticalize that, turn that into numbers, <coughs> and turn it into a statistical model that compares males and females, those with one version of a gene, another version of a gene. You look at the development of fatness across these rats across time, and then you've got a, a time-integrated model, statistical model, of what happens to these rats across the time before you slaughter them and then pick them apart and look at their adipose tissue. So look at the level of interdisciplinarity in just doing this process. The development of an obob mouse, the idea that an obob mouse represents humans, <clears throat> the idea that the adipose tissue that you're looking at is potentially pathological, turning that pathological adipose tissue into numbers, and then statisticalizing those numbers. You've got several stages of interdisciplinarity just in producing three figures from one research paper. <clears throat> okay, then we've got human models. Um, and of course, we know this guy. Uh, he's been sacrificing himself for humanity um, across, uh, across the last decade or so. Um, man versus food, he likes eating a lot. Um, in obesity studies where humans involved, there is the issue of statisticalizing a, a study or an experiment. Who should represent, be re represented in a study. Are they somehow normative? Are they representative of an obese population? Are they representative of people who like to eat a lot? Um, how do you identify the right model for what you want to know? So again, 
human models are really humans involved in experiments, but they have to be somehow comparative with something so that you can use the representations uh, in, a, in, a, in a meaningful way. Okay, um, in that particular case, this is where the Phantom Pringles come in. Amy got me the Phantom Pringles, thank you. Yep. Um, <clears throat> the idea of disinhibited eating is first of all a psychological model. Some people are more likely to overeat than others and you can measure that by just asking a bunch of psychological questions. Then people mostly eat homeostasis. Imagine you have a box of Pringles in your hand, okay? Amy's passed them around, you've got a box of Pringles, okay? Open that box, smell it, okay? Put one in your mouth, okay? It's in your mouth, okay? Eat it. You want another one, don't you? Yeah. Okay, okay. Take that second one. Keep eating. Okay. Now you want another one, don't you? Okay. Take a third one. Okay. Now you want another one, don't you? Of course you do. Take another one. Okay. Some people have stopped. Other people keep going. Those people have stopped are the ones who are just responding to a homeostasis. Those people that keep going are those who would have so-called it be in disequilibrium. They have disinhibited eat, eating. Those are the dangerous people because they can't control themselves. So we're coming back to Mabry Lewis and, and Levi Strauss again within one particular within one particular model. Now to normalise hedonic eating, there is now this idea of hedonic hunger that has been developed to say, well, actually, you can rationalise the idea of overeating by calling it a particular kind of hunger. You're responding to the pleasure rather than responding to internal signals. So leave it for you to discuss. Okay, I'll run. It's getting more complicated. That's sort of say that the gut is involved in this, and thank you, Nadine Levin, for giving me this. It actually complicates everything, because we're not just dealing with the human genome now, but bacterial genome, and also the environments are not external. The environments are the bacterial environments in your gut. We are not individuals anymore. We are ecologies. And so the idea of individual homeostasis is now challenged just in the last, last two or three years, in fact. So... Okay, to get to the grown-up bit, um, theories of obesity. It's a complex system, many levels of scale, very different pathways of effect, different methodologies, different provinces of investigation, changes across time, different actors affected in trying to understand energy balance. And this takes us to the change, the end of the T-shirt. Um, 2007, obesity is a complex system where... <clears throat> the British government tried to turn this into an ecology. So in the context of anthropology, you think, this is, think of this as the monograph. The orange bit in the middle is energy balance, okay? It's homeostasis. And these are the things that can disrupt homeostasis. So it's an ecology. Eating food, being inactive, being ambivalent about those Pringles you just consumed. You don't want to eat anymore. You shouldn't, but actually you did. You ate the whole packet, um, so feel bad. Okay, um, and then the biology that underpins it. So each of these would represent a kind of interdisciplinary cluster within a larger interdisciplinary framework. Um, particular disciplines don't map terribly well onto this. These are particular models, particular approaches to obesity that don't map onto the big picture. So the different approaches don't, cannot actually explain the ecology. That's where we are just in, in recent times. Last two slides. <coughs> And we come to this kind of uh, multidisciplinarity in systems-oriented multi-level frameworks. That means multi-level modelling driven by statistics, by statistical practice, um, which takes input and expenditure, energy balance in the middle, and the things that can disrupt it, the risk regulators, if you will, 
cultural norms, area deprivation, psychosocial hazards, <coughs> uh, which includes social disorganization, by the way, built environments, local food environments, commercial messaging, all of these can be seen as disruptors. Now, the problem here is each of these boxes is a drawer in a chest of drawers. How do you meaningfully pull those together to examine these things? In the end, it ends up in baby language. And the baby language is to be able to speak to somebody else, you have a small number of words that you can start to appreciate as meaning the same things to people who are working in the different boxes. And then you have the biologists who have the same issue um, down at the bottom. Okay, um, last, last slide. Um, the other complexity that's added is that the technologies keep on moving. So representation explanation will carry on changing because the technologies used in representing obesity and representing um, uh, um, <coughs> in, uh, in, in experimental design keep on changing. And here's one example of metabolomics, um, which is a method of collecting thousands and thousands of metabolites about almost anything. Uh, dope testing, for example, in the Olympics involved me me uh, metabolomics. And so rather than just measuring the dope itself, they were actually looking at precursors and postcursors of drugs. So they actually look at the life history of a drug in somebody's body. So that was a new revolutionary thing that the UK now does extraordinarily well. Um, and and the, taking this into obesity risk and personalized healthcare would allow taking a metabolic profile of an individual and say, we can predict these things will happen to you in later life. So the idea of these disruptions could be identified early on through those technologies. I'll shut up. Thank you.